You're listening to And hey everyone, welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And today we have a great author interview with Uzma Jalaluddin about her latest novel, Much Ado About Nada. Um, Uzma is also the author of Aisha at Last, um, Hana Khan Carries On, and has another book in the works, um, The Upcoming Three Holidays and a Wedding. I was pretty excited to talk to uh, Uzma because... Aisha at last has been on my radar since uh, it came out back in like uh, 2018, 2019. Um, And just the fact that she specializes in rom-coms with a Muslim twist, like it's something that, you know, happily we're seeing more of those now. But back then it was it was kind of like rare to see it. (laughs) So I was really excited to talk to her today. And of course, I love Jane Austen. So we talked about Austen. Yeah, we talked about Austen. We talked about her other career as a high school English teacher and um, had a really great conversation about, I guess, the state of current reading lists. Um, Yeah, it was a really great conversation and we're excited to bring that to you. So please enjoy our author chat with Uzma Jalaluddin. We're here with Uzma Jalaluddin, the author of Aisha at Last, Hana Khan Carries On, and most recently, Much Ado About Nada. Welcome to the show, Uzma. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Always excited to have a fellow fellow Canadian on, on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I heard that you're a teacher. I am. Yes, I'm a high school teacher. Uh, I've been teaching for uh, a very long time. Some people would say too long. I mean, the fact that you're an English teacher means that you are more qualified to do this podcast more than (laughs) us. I mean, put me in front of a group of bored teenagers and I will continue to bore them and talk about books for an hour. So, you know, it's what I do for a living. Yeah. What are some what are some books that you like? teaching um, your English students? You know, it's funny. Uh, I've been teaching, as I said, I've been teaching for a very long time, uh, almost over over 15 years. And so I, I've seen a real change in the way that English is, at least in this country. I'm coming to you from Canada, uh, from Toronto, actually. And mm-hmm. I'm not really sure. Uh, are you guys from the States, right? We are. Yeah, we're, we're, we, we're located in California. But I, I was born in Toronto, actually. Yeah. I, I moved here when I was one, though, so I'm Canadian in name only. <laughs> but he still has his passport. Yeah. So. Amazing. Keep that passport. Oh, it's in my back pocket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've seen a real change in the way that it's taught, and it, it kind of depends on the school. So the the school board that I work for, and specifically the school that I've been teaching at for about 12 years, 10 years, um, it ha- takes kind of like a really academic approach to to writing. So I remember when I was in high school, you know, English would be like a little bit of creativity, a little bit of essay writing. And now I feel like the focus of it has become very academic. So it's a lot of like, let's read this literary novel, let's read this Shakespearean play, and let's write an essay on it. And this is how you do that. But I mean, the if you're staying long enough in education, the pendulum swings to the other extreme. And now it's it's kind of a little bit less more about like, OK, let's let's see how we can make our students and our teachers lives a little bit easier coming out of the pandemic. And anyways, it's interesting. So to answer your question, we read a lot of Shakespeare and we, we read a lot of the canon, um, though there has been a real push for diversity in the classroom. So there's a lot of authors um, who are, you know, who would identify as BIPOC um, and uh, basically across across the spectrum. So it's been very interesting to see that too. When I started, I would read The Great Gatsby and Lord of the Flies and To Kill a Mockingbird and, uh, you know, the whole gamut of Shakespeare. And now it's it's still that, but it's it's changing. <laughs> yeah, I've always yeah, I have to say that. Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead, Marvin. <laughs> I can see well, this sparking just... <laughs> a lot of conflict, a lot of uh, conversation, right? Yeah, I mean, I've always found interesting the difference in curriculums, too. And even within like our country, too. Right. So when I grew up, I read we read the classics. We read all the dead white men, all the Shakespeare, the classics. I think we read Plato at some point. Um, I barely remember it, though. Um, but we also read, you know, like The Color Purple and books like Pharaoh the Manzanar, which is about Japanese American internment, which 
I didn't realize was not a common thing in American like curriculums because Rira, you didn't get to read that, right? No, not until <laughs> uh, I moved to Georgia and I read the assigned reading. So my teacher was like, here, read this book instead. So <laughs> that wasn't even like an assigned reading. So um, yeah, like uh, curriculums have definitely changed uh, with age. And I really like, like I really envy the kids reading nowadays in classrooms because I feel like they just have like so much more more options but at the same time in America we're having um, a problem with book banning and I and my question to you was are you guys facing the same problems in Canada of course not we're Canada (laughs) 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 no I mean that's not to say that I always feel like we're 10 years behind the states so whatever you guys are dealing with today it's coming it's heading our way in about 10 years we're just a little bit behind you no I know Uh, I hope not. Um, There's always been conversations about, I think, what parents feel is appropriate or what they're comfortable with uh, for for their children to read. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, the things that the parents were kind of like comfortable with, society has really changed in the past 10 years, right? So when they were kids, they were probably not exposed to, say, you know, to, to pick an example, uh, a book by an author of color. And they're like, but what's wrong with The Great Gatsby? I read that when I was a kid and my kids should read that too. And and the funny thing is sometimes these uh, my students kind of absorb those ideas and they they kind of spew it back to the classroom. Like, well, is this book a good quality? I, I, I should read To Kill a Mockingbird. And I'm like, I read To Kill a Mockingbird and I'm old. You should not be reading To Kill a Mockingbird <laughs> unless you want to, but it shouldn't be a core text that every kid in grade nine and grade 10 has to read. Like, that's not a thing, guys. That That's something that people have just, like, indoctrinated you into thinking. Everyone can read lots of books, different types of books. That's, you know, I, I always <laughs> I always share this story um, when my, my my first book uh, is actually Aisha at Last, uh, which you mentioned at the at, in, in my introduction, is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice, right? Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. Clearly, I have a thing for her. My latest novel is also inspired by one of her books. And I kept getting asked the question, well, you're South Asian, you know, like my parents immigrated from India, uh, came to Canada. Uh, Why why Jane Austen, right? She's part of the British canon. And I always, my answer to that question is, I read it when I was really young and I loved it. I fell in love with the book. It's a beautiful book, very well written. And the lesson that I take from that is that the stories that you read when you're young, they stay with you for the rest of your life, which is why we want to include, we want to expose our children and get them comfortable with, you know, the future classics, the books that they're going to be like, I read that when I was 12 and it really impacted me. And it shouldn't matter. Like Jane Austen is is a white lady who, who was living 200 years ago in another country. And I'm, you know, the daughter of immigrants living now. Uh, and, you know, my my people were colonized by your people, but I still loved your book. Uh, so <laughs> like, why can't why can't, uh, you know, the children living now, uh, they should be exposed to all sorts of different points of view. I mean, I'm an English teacher, so of course, I'm against book bannings virulently. But um, yeah, it's. Yeah. The, the story, the stories that you're left with, the stories that you're exposed to when you're young, they really have weight. They really have an impact that I think educators just don't understand or maybe they or sorry, not educators. I think some parents don't really understand the power of that. Yeah, definitely. I think it's also the fact that when you're younger, you're reading more in terms of volume. And as you get older, I feel like reading is kind of put in the back burner, which is why a lot of people, they say, oh, I stopped reading once I got to college. It's usually just like textbooks. And, um, you know, like the the reason why we're doing this podcast is because um, in when we before we started, someone told me that, oh, like Asian like Asian American authors, there's not a lot of them. And I'm like, what are you talking about? There's so many. Um, there's more than just the joy luck club <laughs> and yeah and i just feel like a lot of people just get stuck on the classics and i'm like we need to move on it's the 2020s like there is just not even just like asian american asian canadian literature but there's like specific subcultures within that uh that umbrella so yeah that being said though i do wish so as a i guess host of a book ish podcast i've always been kind of not ashamed but kind of sad that i came into austin really late like i didn't really know or i still haven't read in austin 
I don't know if I should admit that on this podcast. Oh my god, we're we're gonna <laughs> fix that right away in our. I mean, I'm like, reading it through adaptations like like Uzma's book. So, um, but like looking back, I wish we were assigned books like Austin instead of like say The Great Gatsby. Right, I much, would much rather read about a satire about patriarchal stuffy systems than like this sad. I can't rich believe man, Austin right? wasn't part of your curriculum, Marvin. <laughs> It was. You really did just read books by dead white men. <laughs> Lots of Steinbeck. I, I read all about. <laughs> I mean, of course, uh, Stein, uh, Austin, Austin or Steinbeck wasn't mm. part of my curriculum either. Like we did, uh, you know, wh- wh- I'm looking, I'm thinking late, late nineties, early two thousands. Like it was uh, Lord of the Flies, literally the same thing that I, I taught my students for many years um, to kill a mockingbird. Um, of course, Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, King Lear, uh, Twelfth Night, which was different, and then Great Gatsby, and this, the, you know, so so we, I I read Austin because I heard she was famous, and I was like, <laughs> okay, let me see what Austin's about, and you know, I I was really into like the the A and E um Austin adaptation, which was really popular, you know, when I was much younger. Uh, so that's that's where I came to. So sometimes I feel like sometimes uh, like whatever's in the zeitgeist, like these these stories have weight because a lot of people are talking about them and you know to that extent i think um maybe someone somewhere will listen to this podcast or will go on tiktok and be like oh agatha christie's having a moment let me go and check out who she is you know because that's how you learn about books that's like people are talking about them and and to a certain extent i i I get what you're saying like i think some of these books kind of they make culture like they kind of transcend what they are like shakespeare uh, you know if, if you hear like by the pricking of my thumbs or, you know, um, double, double toil and trouble, you're going to think Macbeth or even the, the concept of witches d- d- delivering a prophecy. Like that's part of our, our culture. You don't have to have read Macbeth when you were in grade 10 to have understood that. But now I think our culture is becoming so, I don't know, not just inclusive, but like kind of almost like we get slivers of culture, right? So it's hard It's hard for any one person to say that I'm part of this this entire zeitgeist because everyone has their own kind of micro-curated zeitgeist. Yeah. It is interesting to see how much Austin's work has influenced, like, say, modern rom-coms and romances, like, all over. Um, can you talk to us about, you know, your inspiration to adapt those, like, a story arcs or tropes in your work? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, Pride and Prejudice, which which was my first foray uh, with my debut novel, Aisha at Last, is essentially an enemies to lovers story, right? And that's like one of the bedrocks of uh, romance tropes. It's when you have two main characters who don't like each other, and then by the end of it, they're they're totally uh, into each other. And uh, I think that trope is my favorite because there's automatically conflict and chemistry built into that idea. Um, because with romance, just like in any kind of story, you need to have stakes, you need to have motivation. Like, why are, why aren't they together? And the fact that they don't like each other is an automatic built-in uh, trope. So the tension of that, of like maybe, you know, um, the enemies to lovers or even like one one of the parties usually... If it's about a heterosexual couple, it's the, the 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 man is actually secretly in love with the girl all along. Like that's that's a enduring trope as well. Uh, it just gives you all the feels. So I, I think for me, uh, to some extent, the the fact that my books have been marketed as as rom coms is is just that. It is like a marketing decision. Uh, when I first sat down to write these books, I wasn't thinking about genre. I wasn't thinking about market. I was really just thinking about you know, what What would I like to read? What would I have enjoyed reading uh, when I was like a teenager instead of those Jane Austen books or in addition to the Jane Austen books? Uh, and oftentimes they were love stories because they were, you know, the books that I've been writing, the, my my, th- my three novels, I have a fourth one coming out that I co-wrote. Um, it'll be coming out at the end of the year. They're all romances because I like happy stories about people who look like me. Unfortunately, South Asians and Muslims, we don't really feature in a lot of happy stories. It's changing, but very slowly. Uh, the other the other thing that I love is uh, the second chance romance. And that's what Much Ado About Nada, which is publishing June 13th, uh, is, is a classic much, uh, second chance romance novel. And it's inspired by Jane Austen, the last Jane Austen novel, uh, which is called Persuasion, and uh, recently got a Netflix reboot, uh, <laughs> which was oh my god, uh, it's it's panned. so bad. It was, um, uh, which was yeah, very much panned by yeah. critics and by audiences alike. 
Yeah, I like I, I don't know why I, I must have like blanked out. But I, like I knew when I picked up your book that it was uh, persuasion inspired, but I must have forgotten while like within like the first chapter. So like maybe like the first quarter of the book, I was like, you know, I'm getting a lot of persuasion feels <laughs> in this book. There's a lot of like, like the so much whole sadness like half and- <laughs> agony, half hope. Like I'm getting that feel. And, and, and then like... Um, something happens in the book where I was just like, oh, it is persuasion. <laughs> um, yeah, but like persuasion, I feel like it is arguably the hardest uh, Austin work to adapt. It is very introspective. It was written at the end of um, Austin's career. She, it was, you know, published after her death. And, uh, you know, Anne Elliot, the main character, she, she's like, very withdrawn, very quiet, and we don't really get a lot of quiet protagonists in in literature. Like ev- everybody thinks that they have to be Lizzie Bennet uh, to be a hero, uh, but that's not true. Um, so, like, my question is: like, did the story of Nada and Baz come first, or did you like retrofit it to uh, parallel persuasion? Like, what made you pick up persuasion and be like, I'm gonna adapt this? <laughs> Um, so when I, when I wrote, sat down to write Much Ado About Nada, uh, I knew that I, I wanted it to be inspired by persuasion, but the title is Much Ado About Nada, which is a pun, uh, and a reference to a Shakespearean play called Much Ado About Nothing. Though the phrase, of course, Much Ado About Nothing has entered the pop culture. So I had this like very ambitious idea of doing a mashup of Much Ado About Nothing meets Persuasion. And when I first sat down to write the book, that was my intention. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this sort of interesting mashup of Shakespeare and Austin. And then I'm going to set it in uh, basically a massive Muslim conference. It's, you know, like like these conferences in a lot of these faith groups take place all around the world. Uh, There's a really big one in Toronto, a couple of really big ones in Toronto that I grew up attending. And so I thought it would be a really funny place to to set this story. Um, and and I knew that I wanted to do both of these things. So much to do about nothing and persuasion. And of course, what always happens to me, even though I'm an outliner, is that the story gets away from me. And I wrote and rewrote the story and uh, it ended up being um, more of a persuasion inspired story than anything else. And in fact, the much to do about nothing part had to in, in a rewrite that I that I did uh, last summer, we had to get thrown out the window. Um, and, and you know, like the book will tell you what it wants to be, no matter what your in- initial intentions are in the beginning. So it, it wasn't so much that I kind of retrofitted it to persuasion. In, in fact, the as I wrote the character of Nada and Baz, I had this, you know, the second the idea of the second chance romance this is, this is not a spoiler, like they were together before. And, you know, over the course of the story, you, you find out what their history is. Um, but the persuasion-y part of it was actually really hard for me to figure out. Like, I, I'm i a huge fan of the Jane Austen original. Uh, but and, and I agree with you. It's a really hard trope to kind of pull off because when you're doing that, most of the story is about a character who is kind of uh, regretting the decisions and the actions of her past. And it's not always fun uh, to watch a character who spends the entire time kind of moping. And so in my version, I wanted to make sure that there was enough going on in the present day to kind of justify, you know, maybe her withdrawn her, 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 her actions. And yet there's still kind of like forward momentum in the plot in the present day. And it's not just always focused in the past, which was really tricky to do. And it took a couple of drafts. Um, and I almost had to like break the story a couple of times in order to go back to it, to use a screenwriting term, uh, <laughs> to go back to it and really be like, no, this is what the story is about. Ironically, the Netflix movie Persuasion, I feel like watching that and then watching the audience reaction to that really made me uh, made me inspired to kind of go deeper into the story. So, so bad art also has its place in the world. Yeah, I was about to say bad art <laughs> inspires good art. And also like the title, Much to Do About Nada, even though you had to take out the uh, Shakespearean part of the plot. I mean, the title is so good. Of Thank course, you. you had to keep it. Yeah, yeah. The title was too good. Actually, my husband came up with the title. Uh, he, he was like, her name is Nada. Why don't you make it Much Ado About Nada? And I was like, that's it. That's the title. I'm writing this book. <laughs> yeah, I thought the... um. 
you know, the parts of Persuasion that worked really well was the, um, because Persuasion, the original story, again, have not read it, have not seen the Netflix series, have only learned about through Os- cultural osmosis, let's say. But the I, I know the the conceit is that the main character gets some like meddling, meddlesome advice from someone she trusts and then makes a decision that she regrets. And if that is not like the most like Asian diaspora, like children of immigrant experience, <laughs> I, I don't know what is. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. When I was reading uh, reading it over, like I read it a couple of times, I always read Persuasion. It's one of my favorite novels, but I, I, re- I reread it in kind of like halfway through my drafting process just to be like, what what parts of this can I uh, can I really include? And that part is so is so relatable, right? Like A, it's Anne Elliot is essentially she is like she isn't uh, she's a middle child in the book, but she might as well be like the eldest child of an immigrant family. Right. Like all of the weight and the responsibility. speaking as the eldest child in an immigrant family, all of the weight and the expectations uh, are kind of put on Anne Elliot. Right. She is the one who has to go and like make the, you know, uh, make the do the calls on the neighbors and be the responsible one and kind of be the 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 perfect representation for the family. Uh, she's the one who worries about money when her father, when, when her widowed spend her father doesn't. And so um, even though my Nada actually doesn't carry those burdens in, in the exact same way, because I didn't want to, you know, completely lean into that trope. Um, I, I did want to talk about just the idea of, of, a, of a woman, but specifically an Asian woman, a, a racialized woman, uh, not being able because of the expectations placed on her by herself, by her family, by her society to kind of lean into her ambitions in the same way. And and that's actually what brought me to the book more than persuasion, more than Jane Austen was um, this idea of what does ambition look like and how do you navigate ambition as a racialized woman living in our in our society today? And, and that really interested me because as someone who, you know, I, I came to my writing dreams a little bit later on. I I was married. I had kids. I, I was already a teacher. A very I'm a happy teacher. I'm actually not one of those, I'm teaching until I can quit my job kind of teachers. I love my job. Uh, and yet I, I had this other dream for myself, which, you know, growing up, I wasn't particularly told that, oh, this is something, th- this is an industry that can have a place for someone like you. And so, uh, and yet I wrote my first book. I wrote my second book. I've, I've had some success. And so what does like navigating that success look like uh, for someone who looks like me? I wanted to know what that would look like for a younger woman, too. So that's really what brought me to this book. Yeah, that's one of the uh, main things I did love about your book. I loved how like um, Nada, like her anxieties about, you know, being 27 and like you know she like everyone around her wants her to get married and that's just like what's expected of her and you know that anxiety is like rooted in patriarchal culture that you know she grew up in and I feel like this is something that a lot of uh, Asian diasporans can relate to because a lot of the culture that our parents bring I mean like it's kind of like it's frozen in time because their home country like they didn't stay that way with with their culture. Um, so like, how do you think one can embrace tradition, but still like pave a way for modernity, in your opinion? Uh, you're, you know what, that's actually like a quote from my book, which is when Nada kind of acknowledges that our parents left their home countries but the snapshot that they have of their home countries is frozen in time. And even those countries have evolved and changed. Like, you know, if we talk about my, my as I said, my parents uh, personally came from India in the 1970s. Like India in the 1970s is completely different from India in 2023. And same with Nada, whose parent, who, she's younger than me, of course. So her parents probably immigrated in the 80s uh, or the 90s. And so she she is also kind of like, um, stuck in their ideas of their their cultural understandings of uh, what what how a woman should live, and you know to a certain extent every child faces this right like we you know like my kids are probably way more for instance savvy about social media than I am just because even though I grew up with the internet it, they just have a different relationship to it but it's ex- especially complicated I think for the children of immigrants who are facing this on multiple levels. And Nada's uh, reaction to this is essentially to, uh, you know, she she kind of pushes back, and her 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 way of pushing back is to try to 
find a place for herself in 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 her society right now and to find uh find a place where she can still get advice from uh from her elders uh in a way that feels really modern which is why she launches this app she has this idea for an app uh and it's a culturally specific it's so funny i wrote this book before ai was a thing uh but it's for a cultural culturally specific advice uh that would be given by like a big sister so she calls it ask appa Appa is Hindi Urdu for big sister. And she she kind of saw this as like, okay, we live in these communities where we don't have like that big sister to give us some, some advice about like, okay, listen, I'm three or four years older than you. This is what's coming up ahead. This is, these are the things that you should think about. And so she comes up with this app. And then one of the plot lines is that this app is essentially kind of, uh, you know, she she has like an unscrupulous business partner who steals the app from her. Um, and, and I think that's what we need, right? Like we need someone to kind of act as a mentor and, and maybe it, it, in, in some way I was thinking about myself, like I would have loved a writing mentor when I was kind of, when I still feel like I'm coming up in the publishing world. And I know there's so many people who, you know, come from, who are trying to navigate their identity and navigate their, um, career ambitions at the same time. And just having someone to ask advice of who isn't, who aren't, like, isn't our parents, but maybe someone who's just like a little bit wiser and, and can kind of see the future is, is something that would, be, would have been so helpful. I, I always think in my stories, you know, to go back to your question, I, I never want to write characters who completely reject their culture and embrace mainstream culture, uh, because I just don't think that's very um, realistic for most for most children of immigrants, you know, as much as we, you know, to, to quote the American idea, have a melting pot, uh, we're also, we also bring the gifts of our parents, right? So like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna write the character who is uh, completely embracing, for instance, white mainstream culture. They're still going to have aspects of themselves that are rooted in their immigrant or their uh, faith or their cultural identity. And, you know, that, that's, that's the kind of, the nuance is that the characters decide the things that they want to bring with them and the things they want to leave back, I think, is really where the character conflict and drama comes from. Yeah. I thought a really cool part about reading your book was that you get very specific in like describing Muslim and Desi culture, but you don't really spend a lot of time explaining that to the reader, kind of trusting us to fill in the context ourselves. And I think it was easier for me now because of all the other like, Muslim Desi media that's in the world right now. You have things like Never Have It Ever, uh, We Are Lady Parts, Ms. Marvel. And so I, I'm just curious, like what, what made you want to write in this way? Uh, my writing is very iterative. So it's kind of gone through different, um, different rounds of editing, uh, even in my head. And as it comes onto the, to the page, actually, what was really formative was um, I started listening to this amazing podcast on NPR called uh, Code Switch. I don't know if you've heard of it. And they had, I distinctly remember this moment, they had this episode on something called the explanatory comma. Yes. yes. <laughs> it was 2016 or something, 2017, something like that. And I was in the middle of drafting my very first novel, my debut novel. And they were saying how the explanatory commas um, essentially, so, it, you know, to explain what that is, the explanatory comma is like, chai, comma, a cup of tea, you know, so it, it's that comma and then the explanation in English of what the, the quote unquote foreign word would be. And they they talked about how that puts so much of the emphasis of the storytelling, um, the readers very much in, in the position of not being part of uh, the cultural conversation and uh, and how, you know, who are you essentially writing for? And I thought, well, who am I writing for? I'm writing for people who look like me. And even if you know, my readers, I, I want them to be from all swaths of life and all backgrounds. Uh, but the person that I'm really writing for is the the Muslim South Asian immigrant kid, right? The, the me, essentially, like, you know, uh, a few years ago. So I kind of keep that topmost, but I still, of course, put in, like every writer does, cultural clues, right? So you can figure out what I'm talking about when I say, oh, we're going to attend a nikah uh, you know, a wedding. That's what that means, right? And and from the context of the story, you can kind of pick that up. And I, I keep that in my head a lot. Earlier drafts of my books that I, I wrote, maybe because I've been a writer for, you know, decades, um, definitely had like the glossary in the back or like way more explanation. Um, but this one, I, I really tried to dial back. That being said, 
my my readers who are who are Desi, who are South Asian, who are Muslim, will be like, oh, you explain too much. So they still think I explain too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, did you what did your editor have to say about that? Like, did they give you pushback on like the the amount of description you're putting in there? No, no, not at all. In fact, they actually liked it. I, I think that it felt more immersive to them. I mean, Google is literally on everyone's phone. Like if you really don't understand a word because you've never, you know, encountered this culture before, all you have to do is do the same thing that I do when I read books about <laughs> cultures that I, you know, th- that I don't understand. Like, to be honest, like, I don't know what Yuletide is. I've never celebrated <laughs> Christmas before. Like I had to Google that, <laughs> you know, so yeah. people can do a little bit of extra work. It's called lateral reading. It's a really a good way of, uh, you know, reading. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. That- I mean, I love that you're writing for uh, the Muslim readers who, you know, didn't really have uh, representation until recently. Um, And I feel like, you know, most non-Muslim readers, um, non-BIPOC readers, they probably see arranged marriage as like this antiquated practice. It's like forced marriage and there's this preconception that Muslims don't date at all. It's just like one one or two meetings and then bam, marriage. Um, but what I love about your your books is that it it, it shows that like, no, there is romance uh, with these Muslim characters. There is halal dating. Um, so like, can you tell us more about like how you lay out the groundwork to show uh, that halal dating can be equally romantic um, to like modern Western dating. Yeah, sure. Uh, actually, I would say my first book kind of uh, made fun of uh, made, made fun of arranged marriage, and that was when I sat down to write Aisha at last. I was really thinking about it being a satire more than anything else. Um, so the main character is a guy. He's he's the he's the Mister Darcy character. Uh, but he's like a very, you know, um, observant, pious Muslim man. So he dresses in a certain way and he's convinced that he wants an arranged marriage. And this is in complete contrast to the female Elizabeth Bennett character, Aisha, who is convinced that she forget arranged marriage. She doesn't want to get married. Um, and what's important to me here is that I talk about all kinds of points of view, not just one. Like there isn't like an overarching, like all the aunties in my books don't agree and and think that you should live your life in one way. There's one auntie who thinks one way and another auntie who thinks another way. Same thing with the with the characters. So in Much Ado About Nada, for instance, there is actually no mention of arranged marriage. It's just kind of like the, like the default that everyone maybe is looking to hook up uh, or to find a marriage partner or to find uh, someone who is Mr. Right for them now. But there isn't this idea of like necessarily arranged marriage. It's more like so th- this is this actually comes back to context. My my much ado about Nada takes place in a uh, big Muslim conference, and one of the things about these big Muslim conferences is that they do have formal and informal introduction services. Now, the informal kind are just your typical hookups. You see a cute guy or you see a cute girl across the hall, and you go and you try to make conversation and get their digits or whatever it is the young kids are doing now. I don't know. Uh, and uh, Instagram the, handles, Instagram <laughs> handles. <laughs> uh, and then the formal way is that they also have matchmaking, like they have speed dating, it is, which is essentially, you know, you sit across, it's super awkward, you sit across the person and you make small talk and you see sparks fly. And I would, I would say that, you know, this is, uh, this is the case for people, whether you're Muslim or you're not, right. This is just a way for people to try to find and meet people in this you know, really difficult, complicated world that we live in. Uh, it's like Tinder, but it's for Muslims, right? Except, you know, you're, you're doing it out in public, which almost seems wholesome these days, I, I would say. Uh, and, and it was important for me to talk about this because, you know, the search for, for love whether it's a temporary or a permanent search uh, that you're that you're engaged in is, I think, so completely relatable. Like everybody knows what it's like to, you know, have those butterflies in your stomach when you're like, OK, I'm going to go on a date with someone. I'm going to go meet someone, whether it's kind of, quote unquote, arranged marriage or not. Like everyone knows what that feels like if you're even interested in in romantic relationships. And I would assume if you're reading my books, you are. And everyone knows what it's like to 
to be disappointed in love, to be betrayed by love, uh, to have an awful first date, to have an awful relationship. Like that's what all of my books kind of explore. But with the added layer of all of these characters are, you know, racialized. They're they're oftentimes South Asian and they're and they're all Muslim. So what does that look like when you have, like you said, the idea of halal dating? And halal dating can also you know, differ depending on who who exactly is the person doing the dating. It can just be regular dating, except they're they just happen to be Muslim, or it could be very Jane Austen esque with like a chaperone and when like okay, we're not going to have any physical contact until marriage. It runs the gamut, and I think that's the that's the case in so many communities, not just the Muslim community. Also, like it doesn't matter which community you're from, there's always going to be an auntie, like, matchmaking <laughs> circle. I mean, like, I grew I grew up in, like, Korean Presbyterian churches, and literally, like, that's how a lot of people find their future partners. It's oh, just yeah. like, oh, like, I know a nice boy at the local <laughs> church. Like, I think you guys should meet up. And it's like, yeah, that that is, like... <laughs> Like that, that spans culture. <laughs> Shout out to the aunties. They are, you know, making the world go around in so many ways. <laughs> Speaking as an auntie myself, I always try to matchmake. Uh, so far, I haven't, I, I have zero success, but I, I'm always hopeful. <laughs> um, so I want to go back to your debut novel, Aisha at Last. And it seems like um, it came out in 2018. Um, and I'm guessing that it was being shopped around around 2016, 2017. Uh, and 2016 is when we started this podcast. So we have definitely seen uh, how the landscape has changed. So I wanted to ask you, like, as a writer who, you know, was writing um, Muslim romances, like, how has that landscape changed for you in terms of, like, um, being able to sell your your books is it like a lot easier how hard was it back when you were shopping your debut i don't think it's easy it's ever easy for authors to sell anything <laughs> no matter when <laughs> it was but i think it was especially difficult for uh, bipoc authors 10 years ago um i my first version of aisha at last which was not a good version i tried to sell that in 2012 and of course i was completely rejected by everyone um but i didn't i i i knew that the problem was of course the world but also my book and so i went back to the drawing table i was very busy at the time uh i had young young children a full-time teaching job teaching if if you want to do the job correctly is a full-time job. Uh, so I spent a few more years kind of fixing it and tweaking it. And then in, like you said, in 2016, this, uh, this whole, I would say movement started and it started with hashtag, we need diverse books, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And when I saw that, um, you know, that hashtag start to trend and people really actively begin searching for multicultural, which is what they were called at the time, stories or stories that were like hashtag own voices. I was like, this is it. This is the time. And so I, I actually polished up my novel. I rewrote it and I started querying in um, mid-2017. And by, uh, I was, I was incredibly lucky. I, I was, I was rejected by a, a whole bunch of agents, but I also got a few authors of offers of representation and then by early summer 2017, we were ready to take my book out. And of course, it was rejected many, many times uh, by pretty much every American editor that, <laughs> that we sent it to said, no, thank you. Um, but uh, HarperCollins Canada, uh, the editor of Harper, one of the editors of HarperCollins Canada actually really loved the book. And, you know, we've been in business ever since. And so the Canadians gave, took a chance on me as a homegrown Canadian talent. And the minute, like, you kind of sell in one territory, then all of a sudden other editors are like, wait a minute, let me let me take a look at that book again. And so it sold around the world. And it actually, that's why there's a disconnect. It actually came out in Canada in 2018 and then in the States in 2019. And since then, I, I wrote uh, Hannah Khan Carries On, which um, I sold in 2019, and it came out two years later. Um, and it was published in, you know, by the by the same Canadian publisher, and then my American publishers, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, India, like a whole bunch of places. Um, and that book was actually optioned for film by Mindy Kaling and Amazon Studios, which kind of, you know, increased the profile of the book. And I'm really uh, excited and, and heartened by that. Um, and that was a two book deal. So this is the the this the my the second of the the two book deal, which is much ado about Nada coming out now. I don't know how easy or how difficult it my my life will be because 
publishing is just such an opaque industry. Like you're hot one second and you're not the, the next second. Uh, all I can do to control that is to write the books that, to be honest, are interesting to me because I haven't changed what I'm interested in. Like I, I evolve as a, as an artist, as a creator, and I, I hope that I'll always try to come at stories in an interesting and new way. Uh, but in the end, you have to just be true to what you want to create and put that out into the world. And hopefully it'll find an audience somewhere. Well, there's your Ask Appa uh, answer for <laughs> our future aspiring writers out there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is this is kind of like a random question. And I'm like, I'm really curious as to your answer as like an English teacher. Why do you think Austin still resonates with audiences today, especially non-white readers? Because like you said, like Jane Austen, she's a British, she's a dead British white lady. And that and her country colonized a lot of our home countries. (laughs) Obviously, we're still colonized in our mind, right? That's one of the problems. Um, Okay, but speaking as a real fan, I I think Jane Austen, there are some writers and Shakespeare is one of them, too who kind of like reach beyond their graves almost like the things that they were talking about are still really relevant today. Like um, I just finished a uh, Macbeth unit with my grade tens and I've, I have taught that book. I can't even tell you dozens of times. And every single time I teach it with a new crop of students, there's just something new to explore. It's like, yeah, it's about, it's about uh, power and evil and the descent into, uh, into uh, like a person who was good, who, basically, you know, turns her life around and gets his head chopped off by the end of it. Spoiler alert. And I think Jane Austen does something really similar where she reaches beyond her time and her culture and her place to to talk about things that are still relevant. You know, like there's so many memes and, and tweet, funny tweets about this, about, you know, the the true, uh, the, the worst things are in life is like having to visit your neighbors and being at home to, and being, having to open your door to people coming to visit you. But I think she lasted so long because ultimately I think Austin is a satirist and she, what she was satirizing is uh, small communities and sort of the closed mindedness of, of uh, these, these small communities. And I, I think that's really relevant to specifically immigrant communities who oftentimes kind of exist, even if they have moved away within these like small little enclaves where you have like the aunties and the uncles judging you. And then you you can't help but compare yourself to how well your neighbors are doing or how well other people your age are doing. That That's really what happens in so much of Austin. It's like, well, my sister got married and that's how her marriage turned out. And I'm not married yet. Now everyone thinks that I'm a spinster, which is terrible. And, um, you know, the to talk about persuasion, what happens when your father makes terrible financial decisions and now you have to go and move to Bath and this is like a real, you know, your social status has taken a real tumble. Like all of these things are still so relatable and her writing is very rich and very beautiful. Also, her books are short and I I think that has a lot to do with it. Like they're not that long. Like uh, Marvin, if you want to read Persuasion, like you could do it in two days. Like it's not even 200 pages. It's it's very short. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and also like I feel like... Also, like, I feel um, like, like you said, Austin was really ahead of her time. And one of my favorite um, quotes from Pride and Prejudice is it's actually like quite random, but it's when she's sees Mr. Darcy at Pemberley and she just runs away and she's like, visit Pemberley. They said he won't be home. They said and this, this is a meme now on the Internet. It's just like, oh, they said it'll be fun, but it's not. And um yeah, like her humor definitely just transcends and she was just so ahead of her time. I mean, Lizzie Bennett as like that kind of spunky heroine is kind of an archetype, I think. Uh, she's the OG uh, heroine and and is kind of like cast the die for so many heroines that came before, came after her. But I would say Anne Elliot in Persuasion has done something similar to that as well, where she's almost like the angsty emo answer to Elizabeth Bennett. Uh, and, you know, as much as everyone loves to be like, you know, the protagonist of their own story and um, always has like the best lines, there's also that kind of like quiet wallflower type of girl who's like, well, actually, I messed up and now I have to live with the consequences of my terrible actions. And I don't know how to fix this. And I'm just going to sit here and like wallow for a couple of years instead. And that's what she does. And which personally is so relatable, <laughs> more, so maybe relatable. even more so, yeah. you know, than Elizabeth Bennett. 
I mean, Elizabeth Bennett, she's like, what, 21, 20? So she like age really does have have to do with her optimism and her spunkiness. And and Elliot, you know, she's like 28 years old and it's like, oh, she's she's lived through it. <laughs> so which is also a very relatable story about aging, um, because we all make mistakes in our early 20s and our lives never turn out the way that we want them to <laughs> as we get older. Yeah. And, and Jane Austen herself wanted to write a, a more mature story about someone who was older, someone who wasn't just like in the first flush of youth. Uh, and it's funny to me that someone who's like 27, 28 years old is considered old. But I guess, again, we're talking about 200 years ago. So that would be like the equivalent of someone who's like in their, I don't know, late 30s, early 40s at this point. So, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> yeah. All right. I know as we're speaking, your book has not launched yet and you'll be busy with all the promotion. But I guess we we have to ask, do you have what, what what's in the what's in the pipe for you? Are you working on another book or are you just going to like focus on this one for now? Like getting some out there. Yeah, I, I've had a really busy year. Uh, so I, I kind of did a lot of work in 2021, 2022. Um, so I wrote Much Ado About Nada, which I'm really excited about coming out June 13th, pre-order. <laughs> and uh, uh, I also co-wrote a novel with uh, another Toronto writer, Marissa Stapley. And this is very different. This is uh, essentially we wrote a, a multi-faith holiday rom-com uh, because as, as a fan of romance novels and you know, as a fan of like holiday movies, I, I noticed how they're always, of course, about Christmas. And I thought, well, what about the other holidays? And so my friend and I uh, got together and we wrote a book that that is set in the year 2000. When Christmas, Ramadan, and Hanukkah all happen within a couple of days of each other, and so it's a Hallmark movie come to life, but it's also about uh, characters who kind of celebrate these three faiths, and of course, there's a romantic angle, but there's a lot of like multi faith uh, shenanigans happening, which is really fun. So that's three holidays and a wedding um, that will be launching in the states um, end of September. And uh, yeah, so I have two books coming out this year. Before that, in March, I actually wrote my very first play and that premiered in Montreal. Uh, it was called The Rishta and The Rishta is Urdu for like the suitor, the suitor. So it's kind of like a, um, a, a farcical look at arranged marriage, except the entire play is actually about uh, family secrets and dysfunction and you don't actually meet the, the suitors at all so it's really about a daughter kind of like uh having a scheme that she presents to her family uh in pursuit of you know getting what she wants and it's it's done through the guise of the arranged marriage kind of uh visitor you know the suitor coming to your house and meeting your parents uh so so that so it's it's been a really busy year and, and i'm still teaching high school so very very busy year <laughs> wow <laughs> wow like really like hands like bravo to you no i that... actually you know what uh the grind is is a trap everyone who's listening to this do not be <laughs> make the same foolish mistakes that i did and try to juggle two full-time jobs while raising teenagers at the same time it uh it was a mistake hashtag mistake <laughs> well i love that you're ticking off all the um the the, the to-do list for for romance authors you got your Awesome adaptations. You got your Christmas story. <laughs> Just doing yeah. it all. <laughs> yeah. What's next on the list? I don't know. Um, I'm a, I'm actually really interested in writing mystery novels. So I'm I think I'm oh. gonna take a you know I've always been a fan of the you know the golden age of detective fiction. So I I think I might try my hand at mystery next. But uh, yeah, you know my my first love will probably always remain romance. Why not both? Yeah. Exactly. And why not both? <laughs> Well, it was such a pleasure talking to you. Um, congratulations on your book and your play and your other book. Um, looking forward to what's next for for you down the line. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us. Thank you. This this was really fun. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about Austin to anyone anywhere. So thanks so much for giving <laughs> me the opportunity. <laughs> and that was Uzma Jalaluddin, um, the author of Much Ado About Nada, um, releasing, I guess, in Canada on June 13th and in the States on July 6th. So um, depending where you are, you can either purchase the book now or um, pre-order it from your local bookstore. Or might I suggest the Books and Bubble Bookshop, um, where your purchase will help support the Books and Bubble podcast in addition to your local bookstores. 
um, I guess this is a good place also plug that we did launch a Patreon um, last month. And so if you'd like to participate and support us directly, um, you can go to patreon.com slash books and boba and, um, and sign up under one of our tiers. As a books and boba member, you have access to our Discord server where you can chat with your fellow club members. And for people joining in the Honey Boba tier, which is $5 a month, you also have access to our new monthly special bonus episode, um, Boba Chats. Um, so before we go, uh, Rira, can you remind us what we are reading for book club for the month of June? So for the month of June, we are reading We Have Always Been Here by Lena Wen. And it's a psychological sci-fi thriller about a scientist who must discover the source of her spaceship crew's madness or risk succumbing it, succumbing to it herself. Um, it has very, like, very much like alien vibes and yeah. just, like also video the theme, game vibes. A little bit of John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, love See, this is it. why you should join our Discord because I did ask people, like, <laughs> what genre do you guys want to read next? Because I do have like a list of books that uh, I want us to read, but sometimes it's like I don't know, like, what genre we're going to read. What are people in the mood for? So, yeah, joining our Discord is very helpful. <laughs> Yeah, looking forward to um, always love a good science fiction book and excited to read a um, something scary, maybe. Definitely unsettling at the very <laughs> least. All right. And that will do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Special thanks to Uzma Jalaluddin for joining us again. And um, yeah, we'll see you all next time. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Life gets a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it can just piss us off. Enter First of All Podcast. It's a safe space for real conversations about the things that we all struggle with, celebrate, contemplate, and work through in our daily lives. I'm your host, Mindy Chang. I'm an actor, filmmaker, and entrepreneur with a colorful background, a full life, and brilliant friends who I love to unpack life with to share with all of you. They are everyday people like you and me, ranging from award-winning artists, cultural icons, powerful CEOs, my hilarious childhood friends, and even my mom. Tune in for honest conversations on mental health, dating, sex, family, career, culture, and everything in between. Listen to First of All wherever you find podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.